You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going, uh, and it is March 10th. It's 2022. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific uh, Standard Time for one more week. We're going to, I think we're leaping forward on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that right? Um, and we've been talking about mentalizing for the last little bit, and um, uh Christian brought up the higher mentalizing states, and I had intended to talk about them, and I, I have actually quite a few different uh, uh, maps of that, but I thought we would begin with the, the map in, the Dan, in, in Dan Brown's attachment book. It's one of the things that was a joy about reading this this, this afternoon was that um, I teach this from memory, and my memory has completely changed them uh, from what they originally were in the book. So it's nice to come back to the to the uh, um, to the actual text. Uh, the The mind can easily wander off into its own interpretations. So when we talk about mentalizing skills, we we often talk about the, these four dimensions of early mentalizing. Um, the those dimensions are spontaneous versus uh, monitoring self versus other internal versus external and then uh, cognitive versus effective. And these are uh, thought of as the uh, mentalizing skills that you learn in the first three years if you have an attentive enough caregiver. And that if you don't have an attentive, uh, attentive enough caregiver, you learn uh, variations on the patterns of that. So a secure adult would be able to mentalize those four dimensions pretty well without having any kind of intervention later to adjust. And then if, you, if you're an anxious avoidant child, you'd grow up to be a dismissing adult and you, the pattern would be that you're very uh, oriented toward monitoring, very oriented to, toward self, toward uh, your internal life and cognitive. Uh, and that if you were uh, an anxious ambivalent child, you would grow up to be a preoccupied adult You'd be very spontaneous, but not monitor. You'd be very other-oriented, not self-oriented, very externally oriented, not internally oriented, and very effective or emotionally oriented and not cognitive. And if you're disorganized, it could be any of those patterns. Christian? I'm wondering, uh, and I've, I've probably had you explain this a number of times, but with the avoidant or dismissive person, my understanding is that they can read other people very well, but it's like not not a mentalizing. Like, I mean, I think they, they can read people well so they can get what they want, but but they also have a deficit in actually understanding the internal state of the other person. Well, it depends on how, what the extent of their dismissing uh, um, structure is. So in the adult attachment interview, there are 19 categories of attachment that we can uh, inventory, and then we can stack them up to six. So people can have very complex uh, uh, attachment uh, conditioning and responses. Um, prototypically secure is F3, F stands for free or autonomous. Uh, 
uh, F2 is um, uh, uh, secure with some restriction in feeling. Uh, F1 is uh, some restriction in feeling and attachment. Um, uh, DS4 is a morbid fear of, DS stands for dismissing. It's a morbid fear that if you had children, they would be killed and it's not linked to anything rational. Um, uh, uh, DS3 is uh, secure, sorry, is dismissing with a, with a uh, pronounced a restriction in feeling, but some recognition of attachment. Uh, DS2 is a derogating attachment system. So typically in dismissing attachment, you have the capacity to uh, seduce and bully. So idealize and derogate. But in DS2 people, they, they don't have the idealizing part. They just have the derogating part. And uh, DS1 is somebody who's completely shut down emotionally and, and completely shut down attachment-wise. So you might say that somebody who is a DS3 would be good at reading people uh, and seeing the value of that, but somebody who's all the way down at the DS1 end of the scale, probably not. Um, so we talk about this in terms of empathy. Um, so I like to talk about it in three levels of empathy, although if you were to do the research of this, the, since I've since I've adopted this model, it's it's been um, um, elaborated on. But one is somebody who can pick up the, the visceral has a visceral experience, the witnessing of somebody else's physical or emotional suffering. Um, the second level of empathy is where you can read the external expression of people. Um, let me close this. Level two is you can read the external presentation of somebody's uh, emotion, uh, facial expressions and body language and understand it to be representative of their internal state. And, uh, the third level of empathy is what we would call in Buddhism compassionate uh, empathy, where you actually feel in your own body an emotional representation of what you uh, imagine the other person is feeling. So it's a felt emotional experience in the body. Dismissing people because uh, their childhoods are so painful, the main strategy that they have for regulating their emotions is learning to suppress awareness of their emotion. In suppressing awareness of their emotions, they suppress awareness of empathy, and that can be at any of those levels. They could express, uh, suppress just the compassionate empathy. They could uh, suppress uh, the, the capacity to read facial expressions and, uh, and uh, body language, uh, and they could even su suppress the visceral response to somebody else's physical or emotional pain. Christian? Are these three levels hierarchical or can you have like any, any, any one or two of them in, in sort of any pattern? Typically they build on each other. Okay. Um, so you could have a, a, a DS1 person who does not have the capacity to read facial expressions and body language, 
that the only way that they know what the other person is thinking and feeling is if the other person tells them in words. And what you'll notice about people like that is that they, they can be pretty good at eliciting from somebody those expressions, but that they don't have a, an ability to track it. Um, and because of that, they, can, they, they accept pretty much whatever you tell them because they don't have any way of checking. Uh, Carol? I was just wondering what page of the Dan Brown book, because I have it, uh, that you're looking at. Uh, two, 297. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> dismissing people uh, um, have a disadvantage that begins quite early because um, the reason that they're, they end up uh, in a dismissing state and, and suppressing emotional awareness is because nobody attends to them. If you remember the, the arc in which we develop the capacity for collaborative relationships, we all start out as autoregulators. Uh, and what that means is that nobody really comes and attends to us well enough that we uh, begin to rely on somebody else for emotional regulation. We remain uh, 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 an island onto ourselves where we emotionally learn to emotionally regulate ourselves independent of other people in order to be able to read facial expressions and body language we would need to be instructed to do that by our caregivers who uh, reflect back to us the experience that we're having so you're a child you express yourself completely spontaneously you have a sensitive enough caregiver they empathetically attuned to you they understand what you're feeling they represent it in their, their face and mirror it back to you and you begin to associate that facial expression with the sensation that you have in your body but if you don't have that instruction as an infant how do you associate uh, the the facial expression which is what the was representative of the emotion um to the, the the felt sense in the body you you don't uh, or at least we think you don't uh, do that um you do of course have your cognitive ability and a good cognitive ability can uh, understand that emotions are are uh, things that people have and uh, understand that the usefulness of those uh, emotional experiences and then they get very good at eliciting a, a verbal explanation of what the other person is experiencing and actually if you if they're really charismatic and good at it you hardly notice that you are supplying them with all of the information that they then uh, use to uh, get their needs met christian could you present like an example of how this might go um uh can you give me a context um this person that's so charismatic what are they actually doing to elicit the information that they need in a way that's that's subtle so um you know my how is my dismissive the head of my division or something like that? <laughs> you know getting getting all the information they need to glad hand or whatever they're just asking but they're asking in a, in a sort of offhanded and throwaway manner so it doesn't seem important okay george yeah <clears throat> can you talk a little bit more about the phenomena of charisma and what it is 
since we're on the topic? Um, I would say charisma is the, the ability to entice people to pay attention to you. Hmm. Um, and so uh, if it's a, if it's um, so what you're actually doing is tracking uh, delight in other people, uh, paying attention to what it is that you do that creates the experience of delight coming from other people, and then developing the skill of manifesting that whenever you want to. So um, that you can project that uh, engagement with somebody. Um, one of the so if we're talking about this in terms of Grice's maxims, one of the things that you notice about charismatic people is they take uh, a lot of the air out of the room more than actually they would be allotted if there was an even division of it and people were uh, playing back and forth. Uh, you'll notice in dismissing people that, that, that they seduce you into giving it over. And with preoccupied people, they take it against your will in a way. Um, and so uh, it, it's the same violation of quantity in, in terms of Grice's maxims. Do you remember the maxims, quality, quantity, manner, and uh, relevancy? But they do it by being uh, entertaining and uh, um, delightful in, in the way that they present themselves so that you feel uh, engaged and interested in what, what they're uh, telling you. The reason that this is different than authenticity is that they're monitoring you to see what it is that lights you up and they're serving that to you rather than making it an authentic expression of what's actually going on for them. So I think in some senses we, we might think about charisma as sort of manipulative and it sounds like the way you're describing it, it, it is sort of a manipulative act, but it, that doesn't mean it's negative. It doesn't necessarily have a psychologically or emotionally negative connotation to it. It's just a skill. Right. It's a, it's a skill. Yeah, if you were a fundraiser and you were raising money for a good cause and you were really charismatic, it would reflect in the amount of money that you would be able to raise, which might be considered positive. So is charisma fundamentally a characteristic of the metacognizing mind? And what's the relationship between charisma and attachment? And I'll just leave it at that instead of asking why. <laughs> Um, it's a kind of seduction is what I think of it as. Uh, and I think that um, uh, uh, we might distinguish it from delight, that you, you in, delight in somebody in the way that they are, whereas a charisma is a kind of performance that's eliciting something from you. So it's, it's a performance to get people to pay attention to you right. rather than an authentic relating experience where attention is more, I don't want to say democratic, it's just like natural or shared. Right. Okay. So, yes. Well, any major politician, I, I think the, 
the person that actually had the most charisma of the last bunch of presidents was Bill Clinton. Just amazingly charismatic, watching him work a room. Um, yes, Obama's charismatic. I, I didn't find President Trump particularly charismatic. <laughs> but there's a whole segment of the country that was just overwhelmed by the intensity of his charisma, right? Because he played uh, to them in, in the way that they wanted to be played to or what, what had meaning for them didn't work for me. But um, so uh, I think that's also part of it. It's not a universal experience. It's really a directed experience. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> once you get past that early part of life, where the uh, procedural memory is the thing that's dominant and the brain develops enough and autobiographical memory begins to form and you're moving into the second part of this uh, um, metacognitive uh, capacity that you have and as you develop those skills we look at uh, uh, something um, this other list that's in the book um, and i always talk about it in terms of the basic skills um, and I, I, you've probably heard me describe this as an awareness that you have a mind state and an awareness that other people have a mind state. Awareness that you have a mind state, a sense of self, and that other people have a sense of their own selves and that they're different. That there isn't a universal mind state that all of us share. And that you develop the capacity to monitor whether you're accurate in your uh, uh, um state of mind so i talk about that in terms of monitoring between ultimate reality and conceptual reality and, and making sure that you create a conceptual reality that actually is, is accurate and not distorted in some way um, then we have the awareness of one's own influence on another's mindset or behavior and vice versa so then we're into the mindfulness of inside mindfulness of outside mindfulness of inside and outside you uh your intentions and actions in the world have an effect on other people other people's intentions and actions have an effect on you and you can track that you become aware of one your your own mind state and recognize that you can uh regulate your mind state is that making sense uh, usually through thinking. I'm going to close this door. <clears throat> Awareness that you have an agenda and other people have an agenda that they're different and that's actually totally fine. Everybody doesn't have to con uh, comply with your agenda. Uh, and then the last one is in the basic skills is meaning making that you you understand that some things are meaningful to you or more meaningful to you than other things and other things are less meaningful and so that you want to begin to orient yourself toward things that actually have uh, authentic meaning to you and not uh, toward uh, um, things that don't have that if we remember the non-mentalizing modes uh, early on uh, uh, psychic equivalence mode, teleological mode, and pretend mode. 
and compare it to this list of basic metacognitive skills. Um, <clears throat> in psychic equivalence, we don't have an awareness of uh, our own mind state being different other people's mind state and being okay with that. We think that everybody has the same mind state. So that first basic level of metacognition is to out undo the psychic equivalence of non-mentalizing or pre-mentalizing. The second one is teleological mode, where you see the external presentation of something and you assign meaning to it and uh, believe that, that that is the meaning of it without inquiring uh, of the other person. And so what we have is no attempt at uh, recognizing one mind state from another, no attempt at monitoring the act accuracy and no uh, understanding of the influence that our intention and actions have uh, on somebody else and somebody else's intentions and actions have on us. Um, the uh, pretend mode then, of course, is um, really mainly about the meaning making of it. You're inauthentic and you don't pursue the things that have actual meaning to you because you haven't made meaning out of them. Is that all making sense? When we move out of the basic uh, metacognitive skills into the intermediate range, uh, the first one is the recognition of how the past shapes one experiences. So in a Buddhist frame, what we're looking at is an understanding of how conditioning creates uh, or informs how we take ultimate reality and turn it into conceptual reality. So you have the capacity to sense, the object of the, can be sensed when they meet, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which is evaluated for urgency, needs urgent attention, doesn't really matter, pleasant if there's time. And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a close enough match in the perceptual database to the unfixated, undifferentiated ultimate reality, that meaning can attach uh, it fixates into the presentation of conceptual reality. Um, so here, what we're looking at is understanding that we create this perception of what our, we are and what the world is based on our conditioning. The second one is appreciating the relativity of states of mind that uh, if the mind is equanimous, of course, then you create a pretty accurate representation. If the mind is in some way conditioned, some way um, uh, hindered or in, in, filtered might be a way to put it. If the mind is uh, filled with craving, it appears one way. If it's filled with sloth and torpor, it's another way. If it's filled with um, um, doubt it's another way so that um we see that that the the way that we can create uh, reality uh, the way that we can create mind states uh is is not absolute is that making sense that you're you're able to monitor the nature of your a mind? Is it equanimous? Is it engaged in one of the hindrances? Is it inclined toward metta? Is it in one of the attachment uh, modes of activation? 
The third one is seeing beyond information given uh, more deeply into underlying assumptions and ex uh, expectancies related to the information. So here we're looking really at the intention and action, but there's also an expectation that can happen. This is related to exploration. When you create the experience of self and you uh, create the experience of the world, what are the expectations that you have that are built into the way that you've created that? And are they accurate with what's actually happening? Uh, one of the things that I notice about conditioning, particularly if it's adverse conditioning, is we can begin to limit our, our uh, uh, perception of what's actually available to us in the moment. So um, in each moment, what opens up is the entire array of possibilities that we could choose. Every possible option is open. But if we begin to limit that uh, based on our previous experiences and limiting of imagination, we gradually uh, restrict our awareness of the, the full range of choices. And we can really pull it down to very limited uh, segments of what's actually available to us. Uh, and that this is, uh, I would describe it as part of the expectation based on the perceptual database and uh, in our previous um, conditioning. So optimizing action plans in the face of accurate awareness of the limitations. Do you have a, an accurate map of what you're what you're capable of and not capable of? And do you engage in uh, uh, evaluating what you can and you cannot do, what you want to do and what you don't want to do? And can you action, actionize those in each moment as you're um, uh, attempting to uh, um, figure out what to do and then what action you can take. Um, uh, in, at my age, uh, we, we <laughs> one of the most common things, which is kind of hilarious in a way, is uh, uh, we call it having a youthful moment. That is to say, not recognizing that you're 70 and doing something that a 28-year-old would do and then twisting your leg and having to walk around in a brace for three months. <laughs> This would be a good example of that. <laughs> uh, fostering sensitivity on the contextual effects on behavior. Um, <clears throat> um, what this means to me is that can you track the environment? Uh, uh, and can you moderate your behavior so that it is a good match for the people that you're with in the moment that you're with them? Or do you simply think that everybody should adapt to your perspective or your point of view? Um, I, the, the, the incidents that there, there are many, many incidents of this that I, I experienced, but one of them was uh, in traveling with uh, uh, people to Myanmar, uh, sort of, uh, and then... Um, them encountering a very conservative uh, culture where uh, women wear long sleeves and long dresses and they're not uh, uncovered in any way and rebelling against that and uh, i remember one incident we went to uh, 
a temple and they, uh, a woman uh, that we were traveling with wore a, a, a halter top and shorts and she was outraged that they would not let her into the temple even though there was a billboard in front of the temple that said no halter tops no shorts uh, and uh, and she felt uh, a sense of being oppressed uh, by that so that's what that would mean to me fostering a sensitivity to the context and then having the, that affect the way that you behave in the world perspective taking or the ability to consider something other from another's point of view um we our popular uh, version of that is walking a mile in somebody else's shoes <laughs> you've heard that joke i'm sure if you walk a mile in someone else's shoes then you're a mile away from them and you have their shoes <laughs> Can you see somebody else's perspective and also your own perspective? And can you negotiate those two? Or is it just your point of view? So you, you're, you're talking about attachment. Or if we were talking about attachment, a dismissing person doesn't have the capacity for that. They don't really recognize anybody else's point of view except their own. They don't value anybody else's point of view except their own. This isn't to say that you're persuaded by somebody else's point of view, but you understand that people have points of view and you can consider them. Um, I want, you know, one of the things about the, the uh, current state of our politic, our body politic, is the, the polarization. And can you actually be open and consider the opposite, opposites uh, point of view? without losing equanimity or without losing the capacity to reason and then can you relate in a dialogue about that with somebody else um then the higher level metacognitive skills taking a wider super systemic approach uh, is seeing that everything is uh, interrelated um, and that things tend to operate systematically rather than randomly. And so you begin to have a sensitivity to the sy systems of, uh, view of things rather than sort of a magical randomness that, that uh, uh, some people use. Then the development of metacognitive awareness of past and present, self and other, child and adult orientations. So we might call this also theory of mind, but um, can you um, inhabit the experience of the present moment, knowing that you're creating the experience of the present moment from conditioning? Um, but can you separate the present moment and inhabit the present moment and not uh, get caught up in, in the past and the expectations of the past? Do you, do you understand the way that the past informs the meaning that you assign to the present moment, but remain in the present moment? Can you see yourself clearly? Can you see the other clearly, other person clearly? And can you track all of that interaction that happens between us? The base, can you keep the basic skills opening, uh, operating? 
you experience self and world, they experience self and world, and there's a constant rapid interaction between each person and the way that they respond. Can you track the effect of that? Uh, and then can you also track the uh, developmental uh, capacities of the people that you're with? So parent-child is one of them, of course. Um, one of the things, uh, one of the, the 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 jokes, of course, is that the child is in the back seat. They're five years old. They say, "Are we there yet?" And and then the the responsible adult says, "No, we're two hours away. Don't worry, we'll get there." And then two minutes later, the child says, "Are we there yet?" And then the fourteenth time that happens in twenty minutes. The adult loses their mind and and understands that the child is doing this volitionally and that any reasonable person would know that two minutes has gone by, not two hours, except that children can't process time until they're nine years old. And so the, the mistake in mentalizing is that the child isn't doing it volitionally. They waited as long as they could. That turned out to be two minutes, but they don't have that 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 capacity for uh, uh, experiencing time in that way. Is that making sense? Uh, so uh, in attachment terms, of course, there's the role reversing piece where at about six years old, a child can sort of mimic uh, a controlling adult role. And if the, the parent allows that, uh, what they're not really seeing is that this is a six-year-old child. It's not somebody who can act or process or understand like an adult. Um, <clears throat> so awareness of the degree of organization or coherence of one's own mind, can you track the level at which you can mentalize in any given moment, in any given condition? Can you track when your mentalizing begins to collapse because of stressors that are there? And do you know then what to do to uh, stabilize the mind and reactivate your um, capacity for uh, organization and uh, coherence. Uh, recognition of interdependence. Uh, this is one of the, the, the things that uh, I often uh, see in the world uh, we're all on this little planet together. We can't destroy the environment and expect to get out of it because we're in a better situation than other people. It's one planet. We're all dependent on each other. Uh, you know, we have this concept in, in the US of self-made, but uh, you self-made, to what extent can you even do that? Did you? How did you get to the office where you made yourself, right? And did you build the office? Did you build the road? Did you build the bridge? You didn't. Uh, when you flip the switch and the electricity comes on, who put that there? I mean, all of us were so interdependent. When you when you uh, go to the supermarket and buy food, who grew it? I mean, there's just the levels of inter interdependence are at the macro level everywhere. They're inescapable. And then when, when you talk about the nature of the human condition where you um, 
are designed biochemically to be involved in large social networks where you can be uh, in, uh, engaged and emotionally regulated by other people and that we really aren't designed to be independent, uh, separate. We are at all levels uh, interdependent and to recognize that that's the nature of the human condition. Uh, articulating ultimate concerns, this is, do you know what's really important to you and, and can you express that to other people? Um, do you know what you want? Do you know what you need? Do you know what has meaning for you? Can you communicate that to other people? So a direct non-representational awareness of a wider reality. And here we're getting into this spiritual uh, um, uh, sense beyond the, the limited uh, um, self-identity. Can you move into a sense of the sacred is one way that I would talk about that. Do you have a, an awareness of what that is? And then uh, seven highest order metacognitive skills such as spacious freedom and wisdom so that that's moving into this place of inhabiting uh, a wisdom mind, uh, inhabiting the, the sense of sacredness of, of being alive and finding that sacred meaning. Carol? Yeah, could you just say a little bit more about direct non-representational awareness of a wider reality? Why is it non-representational? Um, well, does it mean like it's ineffable, like you, you can't, there's no form? I would say If we use a Theravada Buddhist model, maybe what we uh, what would be useful is to um, talk about uh, a stream entry experience coming out of uh, Nerota. Um, in the in the classical descriptions of this, there's nothing, and then there's sound, and there's light, and there's shape. Um, uh, and then uh, there's a sense of consciousness, which is undifferentiated, vast. And then uh, the arising of the identity, which is very confining and small. So you have that contrast between the sense of this wide uh, consciousness, wider reality, ultimate reality, maybe. And then the the uh, con the contrast of the confining identification with self and world—that's the conceptual uh, piece of that. Is that helpful? It it's really helpful. <laughs> it puts me in the in the neighborhood. But why is it non-representational? Because in that unfixing unfixated place there's no representation it's just light and color when there's, when there's nothing consciousness that it, there's no 
icons or representations. Yeah, it's it's unfixated, undifferentiated. There's no uh, conceptual meaning assigned to anything. Got it. Okay. All right. That that makes sense. Thank you. One of the the um, criticisms that this part of the list has from uh, people who have developed alternative lists to this is is the um, the uh, it's in, it's informed by these spiritual uh, concepts which are largely Buddhist in nature and that other people conceive of these things differently than that and also that it's 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 a very small group of people really that has a direct experience of uh, these kinds of states to be able to describe them. Uh, there's a question from codependency. Does codependency exist in Buddhism? Um, codependency is a word that Pia Melody coined, which describes the dismissing and preoccupied relationship where the, the preoccupied person takes care of the dismissing person and the dismissing person does not reciprocate and take care of the preoccupied person. That's actually what it means. And what you find in... Um, particularly in addiction uh, the, because addiction is a, a, an avoidant or a dismissing strategy uh, you have preoccupied people taking care of addicts where the addicts don't really respond but the uh, and it's a really a trade for physical proximity um, so yes it uh, it exists um, in the world and so must then be uh, in some ways contained by Buddhist uh, thought, although it, it would probably be viewed as uh, unskillful. So um, we did actually manage to get through this list all the way through. Um, I'm going to talk about some other lists uh, uh, next time, but any questions about this at all? Is it making sense? terms of mentalizing and metacognition, how they develop Christian. I know, you, I know you mentioned that there's some controversy over the very top of the list. And that that's the part when I was reading and I was like, it, it seems ill-defined to me um, compared to the other things. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, uh, ways to kind of define those states or or if you think that there are other models that are a little bit more testable well i i don't think that they're untestable i think that if you practice and you you um you know work towards stream entry and you have stream entry experience at least in the way that we we characterize that in the west that you would have a direct experience of that I guess I guess it's like the word wisdom is it's sort of it could mean a lot of things in a lot of different ways so right. that, that's kind of it's kind of like oh I've thought I was like acting out of the wisdom mind and uh it hasn't always been the case but 
<laughs> until you were arrested. I know that happens quite a bit. <laughs> um, well, you have to develop the capacity for these skills, uh, you cultivate them, and they develop over time. Um, I don't know that there's another way to do it than that, really, to use it as a signpost and then and lay in the things that you need to do in order for that to happen. I guess um, maybe I can formulate an actual question. Because wisdom seems like a really subjective term, how, well, would, how would someone actually know that they were, they had, they had this capacity in terms of how they're practically being in the world? Well, one of the problems with using English words to describe uh, Pali words or Sanskrit words or um, Tibetan words that describe these kinds of states is they come with all of the Western associations uh, in addition to the specific meaning that they're supposed to be conveying. Uh, so the wisdom of this is the direct experience of, of a non-representational view of uh, self and world. And then if you look at the, the Theravada practices that lead to that, then we would be talking about the, uh, at least in the Metavipassana of a Mahasi way of talking about it, um, the progress of insight, the, those stages. And so you would be working to develop them so that you could come into fruition and have the experiences that are described there. That would be the idea. Um, we might also call that intuition or simply uh, opening up to a communication of the, un the unconscious experience but not filtering anything uh, in the self experience or in the limited identity experience. And as we, as you may remember, as we went through that list, uh, the, the gradual opening up of, of more and more of uh, allowing into consciousness everything that's happening, uh, as much as we have the capacity to do that, because consciousness itself is so limited in compared to what's actually happening. Jake? George, I was wondering if you could speak to the idea of spiritual bypassing and how it could arise in the case of someone who maybe didn't, they weren't clear or they, they remain unclear on the, the, the foundational uh, metacognitive capacities but have experiences of the higher uh, metacognitive capacities. And then I just wonder if you had anything to say about this, this idea that someone could then come to value um, a sort of transcendent experience and remain kind of unresolved or undeveloped in the what you would say like the lower metacognitive capacities, which I, I'm just... I don't think that's a judgment. I'm just saying the way you're organizing it, like lower, lower and higher. So I just wanted to <laughs> put that out there and um, 
see if you could share anything back. Um, I mean, does that does that ring a bell? Do you see that happen at times? The um, so I guess it, it, and what ends up happening for me is I question whether or not the I question the validity of the their assertion that they've attained these higher states. Um, one of the things I notice about particular about practice in, in general is that if you do a meditation technique, you have the insights that come from doing that particular technique. And um, if you, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm, I tend to have a hard time with a felt sense of, um, of uh, um, some of the aspects of the Tibetan practice about the lineage uh, and uh, uh, communications from root gurus and that sort of thing. And I was doing a practice, and the practice was to elicit a message from uh, the root guru. Uh, and I did the practice, and in my mind arose this thought that was what was supposed to happen, which was you have a, a communication from the root guru. I didn't have a sense that it was from a root guru, but I did have the message. Um, So you can practice in a certain way, have the experience of it, uh, and uh, assume that in having those experiences that it, it integrates the rest of what's supposed to be there, even though you actually haven't done that part. Uh, and uh, so then you would be inferring that because of this attainment or that experience that you had from doing a particular practice, that that meant that all of the other practices were done and all of the other insights were there that were supposed to be there in order for that uh, to be uh, a, a thorough attainment, I guess, or complete attainment. So, so are we saying like, than a thorough attainment or a complete picture of uh, spiritual development then should be based on the, the very foundational aspects of mentalizing in relationship. Right. That you move okay. through the whole process. Don't skip pieces. And is there a whole picture of what the whole process is? Or is this just something we're just like learning about and investigating because the way it's described in the attachment book, it's, it's more like there's first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation, but it's, it's, it doesn't seem like there's a really coherent model yet. I mean, one that's easy to understand. Well, I think each of the different uh, tr traditions puts forth their, their, a practice model. Um, 
and then how thoroughly do you engage in that? Um, I don't know that, um, well, we can talk about this more as we bring up different kinds of lists that track uh, different kinds of development. Um, in you know, some of the uh, these um, understandings were developed millennia ago, uh, and they would be contextualized in the culture of the time that they were created. And those meanings actually may not have held up uh, for um, or work so well in, in the culture that we have now or the civilization that we have now. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why uh, these the the systemic. Uh, let's see if I can point it out. The um, in the advanced ones, taking a wider super systematic perspective is that you're then integrating these other descriptions and evaluating the system that you're using based on other reflections of other systems so that you have a fuller picture of actually what's happening. Um, that's what I would say. Okay. So there's a question about uh, Sasaki Roshi. One of the things that happens in um, in communities that form around uh, 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 teachers, and this happens quite ordinarily in in, in the Buddhist communities, is that. Um, and I was actually reading about the, the settlement for a doctor at uh, UCLA that. Abuse. I think there was a thousand students in the, the lawsuit. How do you abuse a thousand students in a lawsuit without everybody knowing that that's what's happening? Everybody knew that was happening, uh, and they understood it in terms that made it acceptable. With Sasaki Roshi, uh, I think, or well, it says Sasuki Roshi, um, but I was thinking of Sasaki Roshi. Uh, um, there was a great scandal after he stopped teaching. The reason it happened after he was, uh, after he stopped teaching, was because everybody wanted to study with him because he was an enlightened master, and so there were no, there were no uh, uh, credible complaints about his conduct, which was widely known. Because if you complained about it, he wouldn't accept you as a student, and so the culture. Uh, tolerated it uh, because of the interest of the people who wanted to to study with him, and then after he was no longer teaching, and then that goal was not available, uh, there was less impetus to suppress it. As it was explained to me, he was uh, it was part of his bodhisattva vow, where he was engaging in behavior that would ensure his reincarnation. Um, but actually, that doesn't hold up very well. <laughs> but that was how it was explained. 
um, and he was quite quite a remarkable teacher if you if you had the occasion to to sit with him and uh, his effect was you know uh, he was he had uh, the capacity for shaktipat I don't know if you know that term but it it uh um he would look at you and smile and you would be flooded with the most intense bliss state it was just intoxicating um, can can you comment a little bit more on that though how what's the relationship between that sort of situation and the sort of disorganized state of mind that's actually having uh, some sort of trauma response you know i don't know if you ever picked up on that I, i've heard someone like uh uh, Matthew Remsky, he has a, quite a bit to say about that, that that strange phenomena of uh, cultic in cultic scenarios where there there is a, a very strong sense of power, like spiritual power, but it's it's built on a sort of uh, kind of cultic or disorganized sort of clinging. I'm just putting well, that out what, there. So Maybe I would put it in, in the, these terms. For people who can say a, a, an authentic yes or an authentic no, that kind of engagement is not that troubling. You just say yes to it or you say no to it. And because it's an authentic expression of what you're interested in, it doesn't create a conflict. Right, okay. It's when you can't make an authentic yes or an authentic no that you get pulled into situations where you're engaging in an activity that you may have given uh, an outward expression of permission to engage in, but you didn't want to make that expression. And because you couldn't say no to it, uh, the fear of loss of uh, the position of student with a teacher was overwhelming. And so you agreed uh however you agreed to it simply by not resisting it or saying no um and then of course it it creates enormous conflict later i mean i think this situation it, it's pretty widespread i mean it's a pattern that repeats itself we can understand it in that way and I wonder if we could do something with this teaching on uh, metacognition, like some sort of scale, like don't don't cult yourself scale. Something like that. <laughs> you mean for teachers? <laughs> for, for both. No, for practitioners, for yogis huh. and for teachers, but for people that want to prepare themselves, you know. It's an interesting discussion, yeah. We are... Um, redoing our, our code of ethics uh, um, again. Uh, um, just so it's really plain and easy. Uh, Carol? In the chat about, uh, I, I need to uh, make more of a get more clarity on on uh, metacognitive skills versus mentalizing capacity i mean are they well in some sense they're interchangeable as terms oh okay so 
at least the way that I'm using them. All right, that's what I was, I, they seem to be similar and I was like, are they exactly the same or there's overlap or is one a subset of the other or? Um, nope, I'm using them in an equivalent way. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm not confused. <laughs> you are not confused. <laughs> All right. So we've talked way too long in order to be able to do uh, much in the way of meditation. Uh, what shall we do? How about a short period of metta for self? Uh, so uh, go ahead and uh, settle in. To your meditation posture for metta. So thank you all for practice and any comments or questions about what we did. So let's see what's coming up. We have um, April 7th, new level two starting. We have a virtual retreat. Uh, I think it's the week after that in April. Um, we'll have some new level one starting in May. Um, we're going to do a series of level ones for people in Europe, uh, also uh, starting this summer. So. If you're a night owl and don't mind sitting from 1 a.m. until <laughs> 10 a.m. <laughs> or that somehow fits in your time zone, that's when we'll be doing it. And we're going to do a level two um, starting uh, over the summer uh, or in the early fall for Europe. Um, that will also be 9 a.m. hour uh, Pacific time. So if that's a better time to do level two, that's coming up. Um, then we have a, wind, uh, a fall retreat in October uh, coming up. Those things are all, well, the virtual retreat and the, the in-person retreat are available on, on the website now. The level two is up on the website. So take a look at it if you're interested in it. Um, I offer this class uh, on a Donna basis. What that means is I offer the teaching freely, and then I hope you'll make a donation. Uh, you can do that through the website. Any amount is helpful to help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Um, thank you for coming. We'll see you soon, I hope, uh, along the path. Bye now. Thanks, George. Terrific. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.